Welcome to the Everything Podcast, the place for everything education. Whether you're a first-year teacher or a seasoned educator, our mission is to help you employ smart strategies in and out of the classroom. We firmly believe that teacher burnout isn't inevitable. Part inspiration and part implementation, we discuss the why and how to make your classroom effective and sustainable. We're your hosts, Danielle and Nicole. You're listening to the Everything Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. Danielle and I are so very thrilled to welcome our new friend, Melissa, onto the show today. Melissa is the curriculum designer behind Teacher Thrive. And if you're not sure who I'm referring to, you may wanna just pause for a second and take a look at all of Melissa's content and all that she has available online in the form of her blog, in her online store. Melissa is a true powerhouse. And in this episode, Melissa explains how her foray into curriculum design happened organically, long before she had even heard about Teachers Pay Teachers, and while she was still very much in the trenches of the classroom herself. What was a gig to craft curriculum for her district ended up aligning with her stage of life all the better, and Melissa has never looked back. Now, Melissa's blog and shop allows her to reach even more teachers, giving them the tools they need inside the classroom and the advice they need to hear. We are so thrilled to welcome Melissa onto our podcast today and to dive into a conversation that just felt so very authentic. I think Danielle and I both left the conversation thinking, wow, this really felt like a conversation. So often it's you know hitting the points that we'd like to talk about, but just chatting with Melissa felt very, very natural and she just kind of is honest and and real about her life and all of the twists and turns that she's taken that has gotten her to where she is today. And we just couldn't be more grateful to have featured her on this week's episode. We really hope that you enjoy. And as always, if you did get something out of this podcast today, we'd love to hear from you. Shout us out online via social media or leave us a review or rating on iTunes. We really do appreciate it all. Let's dive in. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. <laughs> We're so excited to have you on the Everything Podcast. How are you today? I'm great, and I'm super excited to be here. I appreciate you guys inviting me on. Well, we're very excited to have you, and we've been uh, eyeing you for a little while, actually, and maybe Danielle can speak on that. (laughs) Yeah, we had reached out to you initially uh, for our summit, and unfortunately, scheduling didn't line up as as we would have liked back then, but we're so glad that now, a little, little bit later... We get to pick your brain. So I know. I was, I was so bummed I couldn't participate, but I was also super impressed with what you guys pulled off. That was amazing. Thank you. Well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. We appreciate that. And, and we're the impressed in- with you. We're impressed with you. It's exactly why I want to talk to you today. We just all love each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big happy teaching community. Yes. <laughs> that is awesome. And we do appreciate you being willing to share all that you do and all that you do for the teacher teaching community and students. So let's kind of dive into your history, your background in the classroom and kind of moving outside of the classroom a little bit. Sure. Um, I'm teaching in 2003 and I started in elementary school, fourth, fourth grade was my first assignment. Um, and I mostly stayed in fourth and fifth grade teaching in Southern California at a public school. And I, Um, eventually just got my master's in reading instruction and taught for, gosh, I don't know, 10 years before I had my daughter. And before I had my daughter, of course, 
you know what it's like when you are just the free, fancy free teacher with no <laughs> responsibilities, really. <laughs> you just tend to work a lot. So um, I uh, moved to a school that was departmentalized. So I taught math and pretty much that's it. I just taught math three times a day and gave me this really cool opportunity to dive deep into lesson planning and Mm -hmm. give me this extra time to start to create resources that I was using with my students and um, a colleague, uh, the fourth, a fourth grade teacher said, these are awesome. And your material materials are so great. You should talk to this administrator um, about maybe sharing these with the whole district. So that's kind of how my curriculum writing (laughs) started off is I was just like within an in-district extra assignment. And I worked Mm -hmm. for this amazing administrator who believed in my work and was super appreciative. And instead of teaching summer school, I spent the summers creating a math curriculum for and support materials for grades three, four, five, and six. So, wow. Yeah. And then I had my daughter and life changed. <laughs> I didn't have <laughs> yeah. time for anything. I actually went back to teaching part-time. I shared a contract and went back to the classroom. Um, and then I went in our district has district had an amazing science program where teachers um, in elementary school, they fourth, fifth and sixth grade teachers get a science specialist. So I became a science specialist because it was nice and flexible. It was super fun. And I was able to be home with my daughter. Um, and I did that. So I was a science specialist. And because I was part-time and kind of doing the stay-at-home mom thing, I did have a little extra time to start creating curriculum again. And that's when I started writing for uh, Teachers Pay Teachers or making my resources available on Teachers Pay Teachers. That's so interesting that it was such a journey to get there. I feel like a lot of people we've talked to it's usually somebody sees their stuff on the copy machine. It's like, oh, you should get involved in Teachers Pay Teachers. And that's, that's kind of like the beginning. For right. you, it sounds like that is, was a long way off and not really on your radar at the time oh, you started no. making material. Oh, no. I mean, it was 2005. But right. I, mean, I think Teachers Pay Teachers was probably in existence, but I didn't know about like it infancy. until yeah. later. Yeah. So, yeah, it was something I totally enjoyed doing. And um, then when I started writing on my own resources for Teachers Pay Teachers, I was like, this is great. This is exactly what I loved to do. Um, and you have a pretty major following on Teachers Pay Teachers, too. That's definitely worth mentioning. You oh, certainly well, have made your uh, yeah, mark there. It's, it's been amazing and have, I've been in touch with, like, so many teachers over these last several years. And it's just it's been amazing, amazing experience and super grateful. How have you seen that kind of transition from early wanting to support your district and creating materials for people that you probably knew or maybe had known about their needs and strengths and weaknesses to creating things for people all over the world? You know, it was sort of a seamless transition. I had stopped making resources for my um, my district for a while, but, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't do it to for the money. It was really like just this amazing experience. And knowing that I knew every teacher in my district didn't, they weren't departmentalized. They couldn't spend this amount of time creating Mm -hmm. math lessons that went into this depth. And so it, the, just the gratitude that teachers would 
share within the district and the, you know, oh my gosh, you made this so much easier for me to teach or this concept was so difficult. And that lesson that you did, it was, that was like fueled me. And so um, it was, it became really the same sort of motivator when I started creating materials for um, on my own um, outside of the district. It was just knowing that there were teachers out there that needed help and I couldn't relate because I had been there too. Um, And I had the time and um, experience to create stuff for them that I knew would make their life easier and of course help their students. So um, it was really kind of a very similar situation. That's beautiful. Very service oriented. Thank you. And can you tell us a little bit about what does day-to-day life look like now for you? Very different. So I've been, (laughs) it's very different. I've been out of the classroom since 2016. Um, I, so I've been part-time since I had my daughter in 2011. And then I finally um, just left completely and pursued uh, the curriculum path Mm -hmm. full-time. And so um, I pretty much create or do something related to creating content for teachers every single day, whether it's a blog post Mm -hmm. um, or a resource. Um, And I, I would say my working hours are, I don't know, seven to noon are my solid working hours. Um, And then I pretty much do some like kind of lighter, less brain intensive work in the afternoons. Um, But once my daughter comes home from school, I, I really try to unplug and just be with her. And she's Mm -hmm. in third grade now, so it's been really cool. I have, um, I created a fluency program over the summer. Well, it was finished about the end of summer, and um, I'm using it actually in her class with some students. So I get to go into her class twice a week, (laughs) and it's so fun. Yeah, it's really nice just to be back in the classroom and working with students and just, you know, kind of feeds my my desire to teach, which you definitely miss when you're not teaching and you're full time, you know, working on your own. Yeah. That full circle moment. That's very, yeah. very cool. And what's, what's her feedback on it? Does she like it? <laughs> well, it's, it's, she does. I don't use it with her. It is more of an intervention program and mm-hmm. she's a pretty strong reader. So I don't use it with her. I could, but I feel like she, it would be better for her just to be with her classroom teacher um, rather than work on the skills that we're working on. So um, I am just working with a really sweet, amazing small group of students um, that are just, just blowing my mind. They're amazing and just awesome. So it's been so fun. Wonderful. Well, it seems like that's yet another way to really keep it all relevant and continue to kind of find the next way to fuel what you're working towards, whether it's servicing teachers or helping students, yeah. hence the name Teacher Thrive. We'd love <laughs> to talk about that name and, and where that came from. Thanks. Well, it's my second name. I started with Got to Teach, so you'll probably see like random papers with that. <laughs> it's a little confusing. Um, and that's because I was teaching and I had to teach. I couldn't, like when I had my daughter, I didn't want to take time off. I needed to teach. I wanted to be in the classroom. Um, I didn't necessarily you know, I wanted to try to have it all. And so that's kind of where the got to teach name came from. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I stopped teaching and I felt like, what's my mission? What am I trying to do here? Well, it's always been to help teachers and to help them, 
um, just thrive in the classroom. And so I changed it to teacher thrive once I left the classroom since I was no longer teaching. I love that transition. First, you are definitely not the first person we've had on the podcast to tell us that they picked their, their brand name and realized it was a terrible fit. And most people suggest that whatever they picked as their first one was almost like I don't want to say like too strong, but it like sent the wrong message. Like e- even with like got to teach, it sounds like you're you're being pulled to it for obligation. Maybe not the- yeah. Right. right. Yeah. You never know how it's going to be interpreted. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, it reminds me of Kayla Dessert when she was talking about her rebranding. Um, her handle was I'm probably going to butcher it a little bit, but it was something along the lines of like uh teach and coach 24 seven. That's right. Yep. (laughs) But same, same kind of thing. This idea that, um, it could be interpreted as positive. It could also be interpreted as like, Oh man, exactly. (laughs) And she had the same feel like, Oh, this, this isn't what I'm going for. And after she rebranded, she felt like it was much more true to like who she was. And I love the, um, the like tagline that you have about you don't want to help teachers survive in the classroom. You want to help them thrive in the classroom. And that's one of the things that when I first discovered you, I really liked about oh, your, you. your mission, your philosophy. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I know we're all as teachers, we all enter survival mode at different times of the year and different times of our career. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately we don't want to be just surviving. And it's also kind of right. a state of mind of, you know, you can kind of make yourself think that this is, it's not an easy job. It's a very challenging yeah. job, but you can, you know, it's about perspective and it's about reframing things and um, thriving is a strong and empowering word. And we want yep. our teachers to be strong and empowered. So absolutely. It and- makes me think of uh, Nicole's episode when she talked about uh, her picture book, right? Miss Claire has lost her flair. Yep. The idea that we all need to make sure that we're doing, you know, what we need to do to both, stay connected to the classroom in a positive way, recognize our strengths, things like that. Absolutely. (laughs) And speaking about teachers' strengths and really honing in on what makes teachers tick and do really well, whatever that time of year that tends to be their struggle or their sort of biggest challenge, I do want to reference one of your most recent blog posts all about teaching, excuse me, all about sleeping, (laughs) not about teaching, all about sleeping. Um, If you don't mind sharing a bit about that, I I found that to be so helpful. And then your visual aids online as well. (laughs) Would you mind just diving into that a bit? No, no. So it was a, it was quite a departure. I usually don't um, do a lot of teacher self-care or like lifestyle blogging. It's all pretty academic, but um, we have, or at least in the last few years, I have been sort of on this journey of health and wellness and just raising my daughter to be healthy. And um, Mm -hmm. I just started learning a lot about the science of sleep. And I've always about protecting my sleep. I knew once I had my daughter and she was a newborn, the whole, I mean, that rocks your world anyway, but then the sleep deprivation (laughs) makes it literally just, I lost my mind. And, um, so I always knew sleep was important and, but then I started to really learn about how important sleep was. And I was thinking back, I just kept thinking back to what it was like as a teacher and how I would burn the midnight oil and think, oh, you know, sleep is overrated and I want to get more done. And, and it really is so counterproductive and really just bad for your health. And yeah. teachers have such an important job and it's stressful and, um, 
not that anybody else could not benefit from better sleep, but specifically, I think teachers are under a lot of pressure and dealing with stress is not something you can do well if you're even a little bit sleep deprived. So um, I just thought like about all of the ways I could explain what I had learned about sleep and relate it to specifically teachers and what they could do to improve their sleep. So that was a fun article to write. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, was this by any chance inspired by the book, Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker? No, I haven't read that book. I'm going to have to write it down. Do you know okay. who I lo- Okay, so I can really geek out about sleep and like circadian rhythms. So <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so into it as well, I, I have to be honest. Okay. It's I so intriguing to I me. I don't want to take you off into like this big <laughs> rabbit hole. But um, no, there's this researcher, Sachin Panda, and he actually just, um, in fact, I was going to put it in my blog post and I think I just forgot. He, he just published a book on um on sleep and really just circadian rhythm. So it's not just sleep. Um, but he is like everything he does, the research he has done on, um, not only sleep, but other things related to your circadian rhythm, um, has been just pretty impressive. So I've kind of consumed everything he's, he's put out there. Any podcast I see that he's on, I listen to. Um, and I, like, again, every time I'm listening, I'm thinking back, you know, I'm, I'm, I may, if I needed to sleep in, I could sleep in. I'm not going to a classroom, but I think back to my years as teaching and how many times I went back or went to work with not getting a great night's sleep and how it did affect me dealing with my children, my students, and, you know, the stress levels and how I reacted to stressful situations. And so I just, everything he says, I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, every teacher needs to learn about this. I wanted to dive into that a little bit because it was, like you said, it wasn't necessarily what you normally focus on, but I found it to be so interesting. I love the blue light glasses you and your daughter were wearing. I mean, yes. Just I'm a about nice to reminder. put mine on right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's a healthy move. Yes. I think that is such a relevant digression and I can't wait to implement some of the suggestions and tactics because as listeners know, um, my, my son is eight months old, so oh, I yeah. am in the thick of not always getting the sleep I would like and then yes. having to go to work. Um, when we recorded our podcast episode about changes I've made to my teaching routine, one of the things that I talked about was how I used to wake up, you know, a little bit earlier in the morning if there was something last minute I needed to get done. Just, just like what you were saying, how teachers have a tendency of, oh, I... I really don't need that extra half an hour of sleep. I, I'll stay up late and do it. I'll wake up early and do it. And that is no longer something I do. So I'm breaking those bad habits. Yes. But there's definite room for improvement still. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, once you have a child, everything changes. And <laughs> an infant especially. But yeah, hopefully it's getting better for you. But yeah, those first, oh, those first few months are, they're a, a killer. But they do help you as far as teaching goes. They really helped it helped me. I mean, elementary school teachers, especially, but most teachers are pretty, um, type a and a little Mm -hmm. bit, you know, we're like the master of our domains. And so we have maybe possibly some control issues. And I will (laughs) say that one thing that helped me deal with how not in control I am and why I don't need to be in control all the time was having a child. So there were definitely some benefits. Sleep deprivation was not, but the lack, like the lack of 
having control of everything and Mm -hmm. learning that through motherhood or parenthood was very, very valuable as a teacher. Well said, (laughs) without a doubt. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about getting back to curriculum. Um, You've talked about how you've had experience writing math curriculum. You have experience writing science, a whole bunch of different stuff. Um, But I feel like we see a lot from you about vocabulary instruction, vocabulary, um, and just reading fluency in general. Why does that appeal to you? Um, Well, I did go, I I became a reading specialist a couple years after joining or becoming a teacher. And so I, I really love it all. I mean, becoming an elementary school teacher was the best thing I could do because I love every subject, but reading was important for me. Um, It was one of the greater needs of my students. So I taught in a Mm -hmm. district that actually did pretty well with math. We had a population that came from Asia, um, and so their math skills were actually pretty, pretty on point, usually mm-hmm. higher than some of my native uh, students who grew up here. And our, but reading was not always the easiest because they were second language learners. And so mm-hmm. it was sort of drawn to language arts and reading vocabulary. Um, one of the first vocabulary resources I made was I took a Greek and Latin root word mm-hmm. Um resource and I made it because I just was thinking like what do I want for my students that's not out there what would be Mm -hmm. like the best thing I could possibly visualize for my students that I know I can't just go and buy right now and so Mm -hmm. that's how I created that and it became very popular and then I had requests for sort of other ancillary materials that went along with it Mm -hmm. um and I, I went kind of from focusing on vocabulary to then focusing on grammar and language, which, because that was another need of the population that I worked with. Um, And then I recently just started really focusing on reading fluency and helping improve reading fluency because of how important it is for reading comprehension. Having experience working with the ESL population, um, I really do feel like those roots prefixes suffixes so so vital because now you're not teaching a word you're really helping them figure out those combinations and get to that point where they can solve for a word that they may not have ever encountered before yeah it it does it really does help them make those connections um you know on a broader sense because Mm -hmm. everything is related to a certain root or a certain stem and Um, They get sort of excited or they kind of light up when they see a word that they can make a connection to, oh, it's really, it's that, I see this root or stem inside of this word and kind of something they like to look for. It's not even limited to like the elementary population. I was teaching test prep to adults and we were having the same conversation. Right. No, I mean, I find myself using some of the same strategies if I see an unfamiliar word and I'm like, okay, it has to be related to this because, you know, it's just, it really is kind of a lifelong skill. And I think our brains are just designed to look for those connections and those relationships with roots and other words. So it does kind of fit nicely. there is a pattern because yes. somebody needs to tell you that. First. Yes, true. And that's a critical true. component. Yeah. Some people just don't seem to realize that not everyone will instinctively pick that up. Yes. Um, depending on your background, you need to have the one person tell you, oh, by the way, this is how the language is put together. Yeah. Now that you know that, you, you kind of have the key to the rest 
Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It does require some explicit instruction, but luckily not, you know, a ton. (laughs) But not a ton. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a nice way to set everything in motion. Makes sense. So Melissa, in the past, um, Danielle Danielle and I focused on instruction with vocabulary at the high school level and sort of general terms. I'm a high school Spanish teacher. She's English. We kind of come at this from two different approaches with the same goal in mind. And it, it varies, of course, you know, our audience varies in subject area, grade level experience and all of that. But for those that are listening, thinking, how do I kind of revamp what I'm already currently doing or maybe even reframe what it is that I think I know about teaching vocabulary what would you say is kind of like a good place to start in that process I think we tend to have kind of misconceptions when it comes to that you know the memorization factor or the way to instruct or the best way to get started Um, you know you you've conquered a lot of different grade levels and you know subject areas so we'd love to hear your take on that Um, Well, one thing I try to always be aware of is this, as you guys, I'm sure, are super familiar is this constantly swinging pendulum in education, no matter what the topic is or what the subject is. We go from like direct instruction to isolated instruction and then no, it needs to be all like within context. And I think that with vocabulary, we can find our we can sort of see that same swinging pendulum where mm-hmm. you'll have people like, no, you don't give a list of words and teach them list of words only and their definitions and, or everything has to be within context and meaningful and relevant. And it's like, I think with everything in education, you just need a little bit of both. You need explicit instruction. You of course need to know where your students are. So um, having appropriate um, tiered vocabulary mm-hmm. words. So um, Elizabeth Beck is an, um, um, a prominent researcher in vocabulary instruction, and she talks a lot about tier one and tier two and tier three um, uh, words and how it, direct vocabulary instruction is necessary, but you need to make mm-hmm. sure you're teaching the words that are most utilized. The, right. Those tier two words that are out of their reach, not super common, um, but will be, you know, the most, as far as what they're not used the most because those are tier one and our students know those, but the tier two ones, you know, our students don't know them. They're still, they still are, you know, have a high utility rate. And um, those are what we need to focus for direct instruction. But just like with anything, um, we always have to provide context. And so having, um, any activities that encourage students to look at the relationships of words and how they relate to the meaning, whether it's analogies um, or um, using words in various situations or, you know, having a word and discussing, you know, what would be an appropriate situation for this word or context for the word. So I feel like it's kind of a balancing act with everything. You need that direct instruction, the explicit instruction. I don't think there's anything wrong with having students read um, or be exposed to definitions. Of course, that's not the only thing we want to do. We want, they have to see the word used in context Mm -hmm. multiple times and in multiple different situations and scenarios. But, you know, you got to find sort of the that fine balance between the two. Yeah, makes perfect sense. And as you mentioned, things are constantly shifting, changing. I mean, I can even think of the way that my curriculum has shifted even in the past year. And now all of a sudden it's no longer in vogue for this direct explicit instruction. So now we're kind of revamping. And it's just like, how do you find that sweet spot over time? It's like, how do you continue to just 
revamp what you know how to do and present things in yet again a new way. <laughs> so it is right. about finding that that balance. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I it's 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 frustrating. I, I mean, I haven't I've only really been in education for 15, 16 years and so, but I do remember when I started teaching and someone would say oh, that's, that's back again or that. And it was like, why did yeah, we ever yeah. go out? Like, why are we, uh, why are we, uh, why are we so like binary? And like, it has to be either or. And so I've really tried just with any, everything in life. Like it's not either or it's, you can incorporate both and there's merit to multiple ways of teaching something. Um, you know, some people for like grammar are very into only using mentor texts um, and then, and, you know, any kind of explicit grammar instruction is considered to be um, inauthentic or not within really authentic context. And for me, I feel like, why not do both? Because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you need that explicit, explicit systematic way of teaching, but um, to make sure you're covering everything, but you students need context too. And so, I've always kind of tried to say like, okay, I feel the swing. I know there's merit on both sides. I'm going to incorporate both. I think that your point about making sure that you're not going too far to either extreme is something that is a message we need to hear as teachers, no matter what subject we teach, no matter what age group we teach, because that pull is, is always there. Um, And we did an episode on, five mistakes most people make when teaching vocabulary way 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 back like it was one of our first episodes ever it was episode five I had to check out what number it was it was so long ago (laughs) Um, but one of the things that we talked about um, is that a lot of people seem to assume that vocabulary instruction is for the language teachers whether that's your English class whether that's your foreign language class whether that's Spanish or French or whatever students are taking at your school but that's definitely not the case. This is a conversation that's relevant no matter what terminology you oh, need to teach absolutely. and cover in your class. Absolutely. And I think that's definitely been, you know, my father-in-law was a, um, a history teacher for mm-hmm. 35 years. And even towards the end of his career, it was more, it was definitely, there was more of an emphasis of like, you know, the readings, right, right. vocabulary skills are not just for you, the English teacher, therefore everyone who's consuming uh, text and for science and and social studies or history like that's very high level consumption of text that needs you know explicit instruction as well so um, I feel like finally there's a little bit more of that um, well not finally I mean I'm referring to my father-in-law who's like you know ready to <laughs> retire when he retired he was amazing but you know like he was the older guard that was kind of like I teach history and that's it <laughs> The things that when you're thinking about these kind of like interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary interactions, things like that, um, I think that how we engage with text, whatever it is that students are reading, it's important for us as educators, no matter what our um, subject matter is, to understand what students are kind of going through when they're reading a text. And we know that you know a whole lot about reading fluency. Can you explain a little bit to our audience about what that is, what they need to look for, things like that? Uh, yeah, so reading fluency is defined in several ways. Um, I uh, uh, Lately, probably within the last 10 years, our, our, most of the emphasis has been on 
reading rate and accuracy. So basically mm-hmm. speed and accuracy, but it's really more than that. Reading fluency is not just how fast or how accurate students can read. It's also how um, they can read with proper expression or what I call prosody or what is called prosody. Didn't mm-hmm. invent that term. Um, and um, also comprehension. So if they're reading fluently mm-hmm. and perfectly and they sound great, but they're not comprehending, then they're really right. not reading fluently. So sort of those four pillars um, is how I define reading fluency. Um, and with the students I'm working with, they are um, – mostly having just issues decoding and with prosody. So when they're reading, they're struggling to um, chunk or phrase their words kind of like we do mm-hmm. and don't even think about it. We just know when to kind of speed up the words and chunk them into phrases and we know when to pause, whether there's a comma or not. Um, so we're working on those things. And of course, we're always working on comprehension um, as well. And this is um, largely because of a non-native, non-native speaker population or what's kind of the, the root? Um, it was just comprehension in general. So it didn't really okay. have much to do with um, ELD or ELL students. Okay. It was just for comprehension in general. And mm-hmm. just because of all the research I had been reading about how important fluency was to comprehend, to, uh, to comprehension. And, and it's really one of the easiest um uh, factors to mitigate for our students. So we're really, it's really kind of empowering that, you know, it's, it's something that you can assess pretty, pretty accurately and pretty easily. And then you can really quite effectively um, address the problem and, and see results with your students um, becoming more fluent and then in turn comprehending text and not just comprehending text, but actually sort of enjoying reading and feeling good about themselves because, um, I, I was always a, a, a pretty good reader. And so, you know, back in my day, popcorn reading was all like totally kosher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> that was just how it worked. No big deal. Like we, and I was the one like, Oh, please call on me, please call on me. And so I can't yeah. relate, but now as a, you know, now I can see like these ones, some of these students who really struggle, like it's when they know they are not reading fluently, when they know they mm-hmm. don't sound like peers um they start to really have a negative self um just self-esteem about reading and so um when they start to see these little improvements like little by little with their reading fluency and they start to realize oh my gosh I'm I'm saying these words like I, I couldn't read this before I'm reading so much more accurately this time they light up and they told they just totally change it's like they they feel like readers and they they can see that they can do it so it's really kind of nice and empowering. And again, it's, it's one of those things that teachers can really make a huge difference with. And I just want to clarify, you're not just talking about reading fiction. This is something that if they struggle with science, it might be because they're having trouble reading in their science classroom. Yeah. I mean, it's fiction or nonfiction. Right. So it just depends. And I have um, some teachers who I work with who are high school special ed Mm -hmm. or reading specialists or special ed teachers. And the program that I have is all nonfiction. And so Mm -hmm. they 
are really helping with their students who still have to take, you know, history classes and science classes. Um, but they need, you know, they are struggling with reading fluency. Yeah. And you said it was one of the easier things to address. And one of the things that students initially see progress on, if there are teachers that are listening to this, thinking to themselves, I know I have those students in my classroom, but I don't know the first thing about helping them. What advice would you give them? The, the, one of the easiest ways to help reading fluency and what's been shown to be the most effective is repeated reading. So just having students read and reread, but they can't be reading or rereading something that they really don't know how to read. They have Mm -hmm. to first be provided with a model. Mm -hmm. So um, you can do that by your, that's something you're reading with them or you've read to them or their partner reading with someone who's not completely out of their um, instructional level, but, Mm -hmm. you know, might be slightly better reader than them. Um, And then once they know a text, if they are given an opportunity to read and reread text as much as possible, um, repeated reading is the, like one of the most powerful ways to improve reading fluency. It just has to be done on a consistent basis and it has to be done with uh, materials that are leveled appropriately for that student. Um, and then there's other ways too. I just wrote a blog post on choral reading and actually it has, I, I included, um, a ton of poems and I, I wrote it for, um, teachers in grades three through eight, but even older students can use it because I included poems that are pretty high level and pretty sophisticated. Um, and it's about, it's just about choral reading, all about choral reading, 10 different ways you can do choral reading, 50 different poems that you can use with um, the students for choral reading, but that's kind of a nice little fun, tricky way to get students to repeatedly read the same text. Um, And it's also great for developing prosody because students are reading in kind of a melodic, um, you know, fun, rhythmic way that poetry um, with which lends itself well to poetry. And so it's really great for kind of getting out of that like robot way of reading that a lot of students who struggle with fluency have. I can see you nodding your head, Danielle. I know you're a big poetry fan as well in your classroom. So <laughs> I am. <laughs> my my students um, tend to dislike poetry when we begin our unit and then we end our unit with them uh, composing their own slam poetry. So I feel wow. like especially this post about choral reading is something that between the beginning of the poetry unit and the end where they're doing their own um, performance. I think that's something that I'll definitely have to make sure I incorporate because I think they'll, even the stronger students and the stronger readers will be more mindful of their delivery just having done that. (laughs) Yeah. That's, I love that too. I love how your, your students kind of warm up to poetry because that's how I was like, even in college, I was like, you read something once and you know, you want that instant gratification and you want to get it. Mm -hmm. But poetry is so complex and it's, it's intended to be read and reread and read and and like discovering new things. And so you kind of don't appreciate that until you've like realized you've just learned so much from so little text and right so it's kind of cool to see I imagine it's really cool to see your students kind of like all of a sudden get that 
I had one student who at the end of the class he was like my brain hurts and I'm like that's because you were really working it and that's okay yeah no poetry is amazing but yeah I mean that's perfect for older older teachers not older teachers but teachers who work with older (laughs) students um because you know if you do a, a unit on poetry you know it requires multiple reads and so it's kind of a nice way to develop reading fluency there I love it. <laughs> That's wonderful. How have you kind of seen the shift over over the years, instructing and creating materials for teachers and maybe even, you know, units for things? Have you seen a shift in what teachers are responsible for, what they're providing for their students to be responsible for at home? How has that kind of shifted over time? Um, well, when I first started, I really just created materials that I knew I would that I wanted and that weren't out there. Um, and so I didn't really, I I had, you know, I had my master's degree in reading. I knew about what, what research mainly what research said. And, but I wasn't like completely focused on the research. And for me, I know a lot, at least, um, when I talk to various schools or teachers, um, a lot of people cannot use programs that are not research based. Mm -hmm. And, um, and even if they pay for them with their own money, which unfortunately a lot of teachers have to do, um, they need something that they have, they have to be able to justify to their administrator that it's something that's based on research. It's sound. Um, it's not like a, a, there's a lot of, in, in any industry, there's a lot of fads and a lot of like really cool and cute ideas. And I've, um, always have tried to stay, especially, as of late, like what is research-based, what is supported, what do I, can I create that I know works, that I know is backed by 30, 40, sometimes 50 years of research Um, because that's what's enduring and that's what I know will get results for teachers and for their students. So personally for me, that's been my focus is to make make sure everything has been research-based. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And in such a saturated place like Teachers Pay Teachers, it's easy to get distracted and kind of, you know, zoom in on something that feels exciting or new or flashy. But in keeping with what you know works, what you know is trustworthy, is a really great attitude to have as well and probably what keeps a lot of your customers coming back. Yeah. And I mean, I'm all for like trying new things and having novel ways of teaching things. I think that's super important and just not even for your students, but for you as a teacher, having that variety. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that we see that looks really cool. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, this is not practical or this I can't really use this or I don't even have the time to like to do this with my students it looks it looked awesome but I, I don't know that it's gonna work or there's so. no depth to it 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 looked awesome but there, there's yeah. nothing here it was just right. pretty <laughs> right I can't tell yeah, you how I've, many uh, downloads I've had that I've opened up and I was yes. like really that's yeah that's I what know. this was yeah yeah I know I think that's um when you start selling on teachers pay teachers you know you need things to look professional and you know you need to look you know things need to look good and clean Um, but my main priority is content. So I want to make sure when someone gets something, they're like, oh my God, I I always try to over deliver. It's really important. Um, a lot of teachers are spending their own money. Um, and it almost makes me like sad because I mean, it really does. It kind of makes me 
it makes me like tear up a little bit because I know that this is not, first of all, they love their job and they love their students so much that they're doing this. I know they're underpaid, but like for me to think, oh my gosh, I just put this up here. Even if it's a $3 resource, I take it seriously. And if I think somebody is purchasing that from me with their own money, which most likely they are, um, and they open it and they're like disappointed, I, I would seriously be heartbroken. I would, I wouldn't, it just couldn't handle it. And so I always try to jam as much content in as possible. Um, that's just something that's important to me. I want to make sure it's something usable. I want to make sure that there is content in there. That's, you know, double, triple the value of what that teacher paid for. So beautifully said, I can hear the authenticity in your voice. (laughs) And it's a message that I imagine that people who are listening to this, who are kind of probably identifying with you might not need to hear but I feel like knowing that they're buying from sellers who do care as much as you do things like that are are really reassuring because I feel like Nicole's right the market sometimes gets saturated with things that are not so great and it can really turn people off from what is an amazing place for teachers to turn and it has so much to offer as long as you're looking to the right people like you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, well, thank you. University. It's hard. It's hard to wade through it. Yes. I mean, even just like as a regular consumer, right. not even on teachers, but if you go shopping right. on Amazon, yeah. you're like, I don't know which one to get. Right. Like, so, and teachers pay teachers is even more, you know, it's there, it's more saturated right. with, you know, similar resources. So it's hard for teachers to make buying decisions and who has time to like research and like, right. you know, so a lot of people are just buying and hoping it, it works for them. But, um, you know, sometimes you get probably a little stinker. Every now and then. But <laughs> Every now and then, I, yes. <laughs> I bet as long as you find people who are super reliable, who base their own things on lots of research, you're going to be just fine. <laughs> I think that's all I've got. Any yeah. Anything else? Melissa, I'd love to shout out where people can connect with you and find you. But before we do that, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. I'm sorry. Anything else that oh, you want to share with the audience? No, no, no. I wasn't going to say anything. I was fine. I was just <laughs> was ramping up my goodbye speech. Okay. Just <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't have one. <laughs> so where can we connect with you and check out all of your not only wonderful resources online, but all the tips and tricks you have about teacher wellness? You've got so much to offer. Well, my website is teacherthrive.com and I'm on Instagram at teacherthrive. You can probably find all of my social media handles on my website. Um, That resource I talked about, the Coral Reading resource that has a free lesson is teacherthrive.com forward slash Coral. So if any of your um, listeners want to download that, it's completely free. It's just um, um, you enter your email address and I can, I'll send you your Um, it's basically like a 75 page resource with tons of poems and like lesson plans for choral reading. So I had a lot of positive feedback from it and a lot of teachers liked it. So feel free to, um, check that out and grab that. We will definitely link to that in the show notes. And by the way, guys, I just want to make sure that, you know, because I have downloaded some of Melissa's freebies, so I can definitely say this. Not only are they super solid in terms of the content you're getting, I don't want to sell her short. They're also really beautifully done. Like just oh, because they're full you. of great things 
they are very nice to look at as well. Sometimes we don't get <laughs> oh, both, you. but you definitely deliver. <laughs> thank you. You're sweet. Thank you. Melissa, it's so, been yeah. a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. And um, good luck with everything. Hopefully next year, your summit, or I guess, yeah, yeah it would be next year. Um, I can be a part of it. I would love to. We'd, We'd love, love to it have even you. more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye, girls. Bye. Thanks. If you'd like to learn more about us and the services that we offer, head to everything.com.